Welcome to the Rise of the Ageless Starman. If you are an investor, a scientist, or an entrepreneur, please join us as we discuss about today's innovation and tomorrow's creation. Together we are here to find out how to make humans creative and vital at any age. Welcome to another episode at the rise of the Ageless Starman. Today I have the privilege to host Dr. Michael Fossil, the driving force behind Telosite. Michael has been the leader in proposing the use of telomerase to treat human diseases for the past two decades. After he completed his PhD in neurobiology at Stanford University in 1978, he went on to finish his MD at Stanford Medical School in two and a half years. Dr. Fossil was awarded as the National Science Foundation Fellowship and taught at Stanford University where he began studying aging, aging, emphasizing premature aging syndromes. Dr. Fossil was a clinical professor of medicine at Michigan State University for almost three decades and taught the biology of aging at Grand Valley State University. In 1996, Dr. Fossil published Reversing Human Aging, the first book to ever describe the medical aspects of extending human telomeres and the potential for curing age-related diseases. His recent book, The Telomerase Revolution, discussing aging clinical disease and the prospective FDA clinical trials of telomerase therapy. It has been praised in full-page reviews in London Times and The Australian as well as being named as one of the most five science book of the year by the Wall Street Journal in 2015. He is the medical advisor for the Dementia Society of America and has been member of numerous scientific organizations including the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the American Aging Association, the American Gerontological Society, the American Geriatric Society, and the Alzheimer's Association. His book, Cells, Aging, and Human Diseases, is the first textbook to explore aging all the way from genes to clinical application, analyzing the fundamental cellular changes which underline human age-related diseases. He has a personal experience with a number of biotech companies, both as inside or angel investor. Geron, Sierra Science, Phoenix Bio, Molecular, and more. This is just on a nutshell of Dr. Fossil's rich career. Stay tuned as he will explain us about his current project with Telosite and how they target to cure Alzheimer and and other age-related disease with telomerase gene therapy. We're on. Okay. Hi, Michael, Dr. Michael Fossil. Thank you for uh, joining to my podcast, The Rise of the Ageless Starman. Um, before we start, I want to acknowledge you for being an inspiration and your stubbornness to, to try new creative ways to deal with Alzheimer. Um, even though uh, the, main, <clears throat> the, main, uh, con- the main concepts are a little bit, uh, it will, I know it, it, for you it was hard to, to push your uh, concept. You will, uh, you, you will describe it later. But first of all, I want to thank you very much and, and your pa- passion and your patience to keep teaching everyone, even, even, even though you're now in your, more in your uh, industrial uh, career. Thank you very much. So um, like first question for you is, uh, what is the difference in your approach from other companies to treat Alzheimer? I think the main difference is that for decades, centuries in some respects, we have all been the prisoners of our assumptions. Um, 
The best analogy I can think of is the Middle Ages when no one knew anything about microbes. They thought everything should be treated with herbs. And they can be very effective for symptoms, but if you're trying to treat, for example, smallpox or plague, you need to understand microbial disease. And I think that's where we are with regard to Alzheimer's and other age-related diseases. We are prisoners of our symptoms. We assume that what we're looking at is the mechanism without looking further down and trying to understand the fundamentals of the disease. As again, prior to the, the onset of our understanding of microbial disease. Um, it's, it's that assumption that we already understand the disease that blocks progress. So from our perspective, what we are doing is looking at more fundamental mechanisms and asking why do age-related diseases occur and specifically the dementias and more specifically Alzheimer's. Okay, and you, like I, with your company Telosite that you are uh, trying to, <clears throat> that you are the founder, um, are you over with the animal studies? Uh, can you explain how you conduct them, the studies? Uh, no, there have been a, a lot of animal studies over the past few years, but we are required to do what's called an animal toxicity study. And we're going to be doing that in dogs under FDA auspices. And what that is, is a study that uh, gives the FDA confidence that we can do this safely in humans. So we need to meet that obstacle before we can move on to human trials. Okay. Uh, how, how much money you need uh, needs to be invested in order like to move to phase one and two in clinical trials, do you think? And, more, than and, I, more, than uh, I have, more than I have personally. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, on the other hand, it, it takes, uh, let me put it this way, I think it takes a lot less money to do something effectively if you aim at the right target uh, than it does. For example, uh, one of the major worldwide pharmaceutical firms uh, spent, has spent almost a billion dollars on a monoclonal antibody set of studies over the past few years and been unable to demonstrate any efficacy. Um, we can go through a phase one trial for something a bit in excess of 10 million US dollars and for an additional 20 finish the phase two trial. Um, and what that I think will do is allow us to demonstrate that our approach actually works. And that's certainly not something you can say for spending a billion dollars on programs that don't work. <clears throat> so yes, it's relatively cheap, more than I certainly have available myself, but uh, from a pharmacological perspective or a pharmaceutical perspective, it's a very cheap investment if you aim at the right target. Okay. And in recent years, like uh, let's talk about Telosite's uh, team. You, uh, a few members joined you. How, how is it affecting the company? And uh, uh, what did it inspire them to join you? I know there are uh, big shots in their well, Right. We have gone out of our way. Let me, let me preface this by saying um, our major concern is not just the cost and the timing of this, but the credibility of it. We do not want to make a misstep um, because when you think about it, depending how you define them, there have been more than 1,100 interventional trials aimed at Alzheimer's. And by global consensus, none of those trials have demonstrated uh, the ability to change the disease course. <clears throat> we think we can not only slow it, not just stop it, but actually reverse some of the cognitive decline. Now, to make that statement, we're going to have to make that statement back it up. We're going to have to have data. But even if our trials show that, we recognize that most people, sensibly enough, will discount that result. So we have to be very careful in what we do. And that's been true of the way we approach the FDA, uh, the way we deal with our advisors, uh, the kind of talks we give, where we, where we uh go out in public, um, but it's also true of our, our scientific advisors and our clinical advisors. So, for example, uh, we have gone out of our way not to pick people simply because they have big names, but more importantly, people who have respect, credibility globally. Um, so, for example, uh, on our scientific advisory board is the editor-in-chief of the world's most prestigious Alzheimer's journal, uh, who asked to join us, and I'm delighted he did. Uh, we also have uh, probably the world's most important animal study group. Uh, it's a, a company out of Canada uh, and their CEO has joined us. Uh, the woman who is behind the design for many of the monoclonal antibody studies worldwide for big pharma and for the design of their statistical work has joined us. Um, so we've been looking for people not only have credibility, but they really have hands-on experience. 
These are people who get their hands dirty doing things, not just uh, having an academic credential, but in fact, they have accomplished things, either running a business or running clinical trials. Uh, the same has been true of our clinical advisory board. Um, we picked people who have been running Alzheimer's trials and who are very skeptical. And I have said to each of them in turn, uh, we are not interested in people who drink the Kool-Aid, that is people who are true believers in our model. We're looking for people who are skeptical, who are intrigued by our model, see the potential of it and wanna see it rigorously tested. We don't wanna make a misstep. And as I say, when we come out the other end, I expect that in our first trial, we may be able to demonstrate clinical improvement, uh, but to have that be believable, we have to be very careful what we do. And yeah, so so um, a little bit about the technology, the, the activation part of the telomerase. Can you explain a little bit of it? How, yeah. how it works? Yeah, we're not just activating telomerase. We're actually um, putting in a telomerase gene that's transiently expressed that will reset telomere lengths. And I have to say that telomeres are not the cause of aging or disease. <clears throat> However, uh, they are probably the most effective point of intervention for aging or disease. Um, <clears throat> it, it sort of reminds me of the, the whole discussion going on with COVID right now. <clears throat> we, I, I think we have a fairly good understanding of the virus, but the question is, where's the most effective point of intervention for a vaccine? And that's why some of the vaccines vary in their ability. The same thing is true here. There are lots of places we might intervene with Alzheimer's or other diseases, the question is, where's the optimal point of intervention? <clears throat> and what we're doing actually is using a telomerase to re-extend telomeres and using that to reset the pattern of gene expression. So for example, <clears throat> the neurons and glial cells in your brain, we are trying to get them to act more like a 40-year-old brain than a 70-year-old brain. I think that's a, a good summary of it. <clears throat> yeah. And like usually when when the discussion is about the telomeres, it's about their length and and how it keeps the rest of the DNA function. This is a basic understanding of mine of the of the problem. Um, anything you could say and anything I could say is a simplification. You know that I know that too. Um, let me start by saying that telomere length is completely irrelevant. What matters is the change in telomere length. So for example, there are varieties of mice that have telomeres that at birth are 10 times longer than mine, and yet I have a lifespan 40 times longer than theirs. Um, and the reason is it's not the telomere length, it's the rate at which telomere length changes. In fact, you can predict species lifespan based on the rate of change. And even there, it's not the change in length per se that's the question, it's the change in gene expression or the pattern of gene expression. So an analogy I sometimes use is a symphony orchestra. If I have a symphony orchestra that one night is playing in a tonal composition, for example, John Cage, and the next night is playing Mozart, the difference is not in the instrument or the first, first violinist or the oboe player or the tuning of the piano. The difference is the score and the tempo. So the same is true of the function of my, my for example, microglial cells in my brain. The difference between my microglia at age, age seven, right now I, I turn 70. Um, my microglia, what's that? Ah, my, my birthday is tomorrow. I turn 70 tomorrow. But the difference is the pattern of gene expression. So if I look at the way those, those genes are being expressed, the same genes that I had when I was seven years old, the difference is they are playing a different tune. Same instruments, same genes, different tune, different epigenetic expression. Yeah. Well, actually, my, my first guest said exactly that, even though it wasn't only in telomeres, but about the rate of the and the pace that it gets shorter. Um, yeah, what, let, me, let, me say, let me give you an analogy. <clears throat> Telomeres no more cause aging than genes cause evolution. You know, genes are a cause of evolution, but they are a key player. If you want to understand how evolution works, you need to understand genes, but they're not the cause. That's a, a misnomer. <clears throat> the same thing is true of telomeres. Telomeres don't cause aging. They're simply a, a central player in aging. You need to understand telomere mechanics to understand how aging works. But to talk about causation is sort of simplistic. It's too complicated a system to sum up with a single sentence about causation. It's much more complicated than just A causes B. Yeah, so uh, you, you are pointing to the microgalia cells and what about um, mutation in the DNA inside the microgalia cells? 
mutation? Uh, yeah. Can this cause Alzheimer's too? Not mm -hmm. only the rate of the, the shortening of the telomeres? Interestingly enough, again, the same answer. It's much more complicated than sort of yes or no. Um, so let me give you a couple of examples. First, let's back up and take uh, a, a different allele, uh, a mutation, if you will, but a different allele. Let's say that I have two ApoE4 genes, which means I have a high risk for Alzheimer's, or I have two ApoE2 alleles, which means I have fairly low risk. Um, and what you find is that neither one of those causes Alzheimer's, but what happens is if I have two ApoE4 alleles, my, the beta amyloid I make is a slightly stickier molecule, so it tends to aggregate faster. But you don't really see that as a problem until you slow down the rate of turnover of the microglia, the microglial turnover of beta amyloid. And if I have two ApoE2 alleles, I have very low risk um, because, again, the molecules don't tend to be sticky. So even at age 90, I may not have any microaggregates, whereas if I have two ApoE4 alleles, I might have microaggregates forming at age 40. Um, but it's the rate of turnover of the beta amyloid that's the key factor here. And yet those different alleles make a difference. Now, the same thing is true of if you look at mutational problems, but there's an interesting wrinkle here, which is that as the, as the epigenetic expression of your cells change, for example, uh, in microglia, what you find is the, the rate of turnover, recycling, if you will, the rate of turnover of molecules changes, not only collagen and elastin in my skin, uh, but for example, beta amyloid or tau, tau proteins in my brain, but also other molecules that are critical, for example, DNA repair enzymes. There are roughly speaking four families of DNA repair enzymes. One recognizes it, one cuts it out, one puts in the new, new base and one sort of anneals it into place, or these families do. But all four of those families, their rate of recycling goes down with cell aging, cell senescence. So what you see is that as cells get older, their ability to, to repair DNA goes down in terms of the rapidity which they do it. So for example, since you and I started this conversation, probably every single cell in your body has had some DNA damage and you have probably repaired it flawlessly. But the rate at which you repair that goes down with age, which is why you see an exponential increase in the rate of mutations, failure DNA repair, as we get older. And that is independent of years it's lifespan. So for example, a mouse has an exponential increase in the rate of mutation over two years, whereas you and I have that same exponential increase over say 80 years. Um, so cell senescence and telomeres and cell aging and aging in general play an enormous role in the rate of mutation in cancer. You might in fact say that, that the cancer comes in a couple of different varieties. You know, there are those that you sort of inherit as quote bad genes at birth. And here you might think of a BRCA gene. Um, but there are also uh, this rate of DNA repair that goes up exponentially with age. So there's an early form of cancer that kids tend to get. And there are later cancers that most of us will tend to get. Uh, but you might also say that the, the rate of cancer as we get older is not strictly speaking due to exposure to carcinogens. It's the rate at which we repair the damage as a result of that exposure to carcinogens. And that's age-related. So all of this plays into one big complicated system. Um, I, I think I understand it more than most people do, but I don't understand 1% of what really is going on. It's, it's so complicated, it's just astounding. Yeah. Actually, my last guest, uh, she had, uh, Debbie Teuber from uh, Ben-Gurion University, is dealing uh, with CIRT-6. We had a conversation about it about uh, the DMH, the damage of the D DNA uh, and, it, and how CIRT6 can, can identify it and repair it and how it declines with age. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I invite you to listen. She... Yeah, it, it's interesting because, you know, if you look at those four families, as I say, there are four major families, but each one goes down on the rate of turnover. So your likelihood of identifying a DNA error uh, is slower as you get older. The rate at which you replace it is slower uh, or cut it out is slower. The rate at which you replace it is slower and the rate at which you ligate it into place is slower. Those are multiplicative. So one multiplies by two, multiplies by three, multiplies by four, which is why there's this exponential increase in the rate of cancer with age. It's just, it's expected. Yeah. Um, let's go again back to the technology. Like how... Um, like telocytes want to do it with uh, injection, yeah? One, 
one injection? Yes. Now, um, you know, it's effectively what we're trying to do is reset the cellular clock. And if that's true, then we'll need to reset it again. Uh, our best guess is someplace between every three and 10 years, you'll need to be treated again. But the initial treatment is just once. Okay. So how do you know it will... Um... How will one single injection telomer, telomerase therapy uh, will be targeted only uh, to affect the CNS, CNS? And does it have any side effects? That you are, what are the risks that you are afraid of? Uh, I wouldn't say I'm afraid of the risk, but I, you know, I'm aware of potential risk. Um, oddly I, enough, most of the side effects tend to be benefits. What? I, I say... We don't have nothing to lose here. <laughs> well, well that's we part of the reason we're going after Alzheimer's. You know, the risk-benefit ratio is enormously in our favor. Um, you know, if, if I were trying to treat osteoporosis, uh, people don't die directly from osteoporosis. You may fall at age 70, break a hip, go into surgery, get an infection, and ultimately die. But osteoporosis, per se, is not fatal but Alzheimer's is. And furthermore, with osteoporosis, there are multiple other therapies that people try, biphosphonates, calcium, hormones, uh, with various degrees of efficacy. Uh, but with Alzheimer's, there really is no alternative. So we've got a fatal disease with no therapy. And so the risk people are willing to assume, and likewise regulatory bureaus like the EMA or in US, the FDA, uh, it, it's, a, it's a, a better risk benefit ratio. Um, patients are, are more likely to try something because, again, what options do we have? Um, but the risks, uh, there are a number of possible risks. I mean, the, the obvious ones would be just sort of generic risks in the body. And what you find is that based on the studies we've seen, most of the benefits, most of the risks turn out to be benefits. <clears throat> um, but a couple of specific risks. One would be cancer. Um, and for 25 years now, <clears throat> there's been a concern about telomerase and cancer. And again, it's far more complicated than people think it is. Uh, it, it turns out that the, the longer your telomeres are, the shorter, I'm sorry, the longer the telomeres are, the lower your risk of cancer. Except when, uh, you know, it's, it's not a straight curve. It tends to kind of go up, peak, and come down. That is, your highest risk of cancer is to have fairly short but not zero-length telomeres. Because if you have almost no telomeres, most cells won't divide in the first place. So you don't get a clinical cancer. You have a malignancy, but it's a single cell, for example unless they do an end run using an alt mechanism. But, but the upshot is that your lowest risk of cancer is when you're young and your telomeres are long. And that's the kind of thing that we see if you look carefully at the data. It's a very complicated relationship. It's not linear at all. So there's a very low risk of cancer when your telomeres are long. Yeah. Mostly because you're repairing your DNA much faster. This will be taken from an article of mine. Oh, here it is. Um, yeah, this is sort of what it looks like. Yep. What you're seeing is that uh, these are telomeres as they shorten. And this is your risk of cancer that goes up and down. And this is your, your risk of mutation. And what you find is as telomeres shorten, your risk of mutation goes up, but your risk of cancer peaks and then falls because here your cells have very little damage, so you're not likely to have cancer. Here, you're very likely to have DNA damage and your cells can still divide. But if your telomeres are short enough, most cancer cells won't divide. Again, there's an, there's a, an escape route for this, an alt mechanism. Um, but this is your peak risk in here. And if you re-extend telomeres, what you expect to find is less cancer. And in fact, that's what we find in the animal studies. So yeah, I, um, you know, it's a misunderstanding to think that, that you know, increasing telomeres or telomerase causes cancer. It's a lot more a lot more complicated than that. Let me put myself back to my <clears throat> background there. Yeah. Okay. So what? So was there any like uh, something similar, to, you know, a chemical treatment that that uh, was used on humans or on animals? You mean in regard to telomerase? Yeah. Yeah. There've been the. It's actually interesting. If you look back historically and you ask, you know, <clears throat> will we ever cure aging? In fact, technically speaking, we first did this 18, uh, 22 years ago <clears throat> with the first studies showing that you can actually reverse aging in human cells in the laboratory. And then we first showed you could do this in human tissues 20 years ago this year, uh, starting with skin cells and moving on to arterial cells and then bone cells. 
Um, but then there were some interesting studies that you're sort of alluding to, which is looking at telomerase activators. In this case, um, estragenol is probably the most active of them, um, commercially available at least. Uh, and what you find is there have been, uh, I think, at least four uh, reviewed studies. In fact, I, I published some of them in a journal. I was the editor for a while um, <clears throat> looking at this. And the data is intriguing. It's not overwhelming. You certainly didn't find that if you use these, these telomerase activators, uh, you reset from age 70 to age 30. <clears throat> but you begin to find a number of physiologic biomarkers that were improved. For example, response to glucose. For example, T-cell uh, response to, to stress, um, uh, for example, bone mineral density. A lot of things you look at, you find that they improve with telomerase activators. They are not nearly as effective as we'd like it to be. And again, the data is not overwhelming. It's just intriguing. Yeah, so it might be um, a concentration problem, like that if you will increase increase the dose, it will give you... Uh, more overwhelming uh, results? Probably not. Uh, there was a, at least one study on that that suggested that if you increase the dose, you got less effect. Um, but that was a small study, and there's a lot we just don't know about it, frankly, Gil. Yeah, okay. In uh, fact, I'd have to say we don't know a lot about almost any of this in the long run. And this is early. All of this is very early in the field of understanding aging and age-related diseases. People don't realize what we're about to do, but it's, it's early stage. It reminds me many times of sort of the first powered flight at Kitty Hawk with the Wright brothers. Yes, they got it up in the air, but no, that was not an Airbus 380. It was, it was early, early days. Yeah. Well, that's. Uh... And yet that was powered flight. That was, you know, it was done. I think that's where we are with regard to this sort of therapy. I think we're going to demonstrate we can do something that's never been done in history before, but this is still early in this whole field. Yeah. Uh, okay. And who, who are your partners? Like, uh, I, I know you have uh, some partners that uh, helps you with the technology. Um, yes. I'm not sure which ones you're thinking of. I mean, I could, as I say, we've got a number of people on the scientific advisory board who are very good at this. We've also brought on, uh, one of the, uh, the postdocs who actually did the original work with Maria Blasco in Madrid at CNIO, um, he's on it. Uh, we have a, a contract research organization that's probably the world's best to help us with this. Uh, we've been in touch with a number of the, the gene therapy uh, vendors that we'll need to use. And again, we've been talking to people like Lanza and, and Wuxi who, who run these things globally. Um, and we have recently brought on uh, uh, a consultant who may join us who's been taking a lot of these gene therapy trials to the FDA, and we're delighted to have her. We originally had the chief scientific officer for Avexis, who is that first person who put through the, the spinal muscular atrophy study, both the New England Journal of Medicine, and then brought it through for a Zolgensma study with the FDA, and that's been released as gene therapy. Now, he had some issues with the FDA, and so we're not officially using him anymore. But we've, again, we've concentrated on people who have actually done these things not just people who talk about it, but people who really know what they're doing. Yeah. Okay. And so be, I, I know, uh, as we said, it's only the beginning of this uh, science. But yeah, what else do you, ex you expect to see scientifically in the results besides like uh, turning Alzheimer's background? Um, what, you have expectation to see what? Yes, this is what you might, what's generally called a platform technology, which is to say it's not aimed at a single disease. It's got implications for a number of diseases. In this case, anything that's age-related. Uh, there are, for example, uh, if we're just taking the central nervous system, and we're aiming initially at Alzheimer's, but we would be happy to go after Parkinson's or any other age-related dementia. And there are some interesting clues that uh, ALS, amyotropic lateral sclerosis, may also be a good target for us. Um, and anything else, again, that's an age-related disease, anything that seems to increase with age. Um, and our, after we're dealing with CNS, our next target after that is going to be age-related vascular disease, that is strokes, heart attacks, aneurysms, peripheral vascular disease, congestive heart failure, the list goes on and on. Uh, those are actually, the, by percentage, the biggest killers in the world currently. Um, and after that, we'll be looking at other age-related diseases, for example, podocytes in, in chronic renal disease, 
um, uh, pulmonary fibrosis, COPD, uh, osteoarthritis, osteoarthrosis, I mean, sorry, osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, and so on. So the potential is huge. Yes, it is. Um, I, I, you know, if I look back historically and I say, what is the most important thing medicine has ever done to make people's lives better? It is not incremental technical advances like uh, robot surgery or heart transplants or the latest statin. Those have a value and they often are expensive. But if you look back historically, back about 200 years, I think it was the advent of the concept of microbial disease that had a bigger impact on human uh, quality of human life than anything else. Uh, the idea of washing hands, for example, before you deliver a baby, drastically cut both maternal and neonatal death rates. Uh, the concept of immunization, uh, sterile surgeries, so on. Um, first polio vaccine, the first rabies vaccine. These made our lives better. And interestingly enough, they actually lowered the cost of medical care dramatically in many cases. And I think that we're about to do the same thing with regard to age-related diseases. You know, if I go back to 1950, there were a lot of people concerned in various nations, for example, the UK, the US, and others, about the cost of treating polio. Uh, and there were people who actually estimated that the US, for example, would be medically bankrupt by the year 2000 because of the cost of treating polio victims, because of iron lungs, braces, rehabilitation therapy, uh, nursing care, pulmonary problems. And yet... <clears throat> Globally, right now, the cost of treating polio is about 10 cents per capita of treated patients. Um, I think we're about to do the same thing with regard to age-related diseases. So, for example, uh, a number of nations right now are concerned about the cost of Alzheimer's disease. And in the U.S., as an example, typically the last year of life is $100,000 U.S. Uh, or more to treat a patient in the nursing home in the last year of life with Alzheimer's. I think we can cut the cost of treating Alzheimer's from in excess of $100,000 a year to one $5,000 treatment that effectively cures Alzheimer's. In short, I think we can entirely obviate the concern about long-term uh, long costs globally, nationally, and personally for age-related disease well, and uh, improve human lives. Thank you. Yeah, that's why we're here. <laughs> I think so. Again, I, I'm, not I, I'm glad we have technical advances. Don't get me wrong. You know, the latest statin can save some lives. But I think we'd do much better if we can understand our assumptions about how disease work, dig a little deeper. And the more we understand how these work, the better, we off, better off we are. Um, if from our perspective, I would say that the, the major problem we've been having, uh, it reminds me of the Indiana Jones movie, um, where Sala and, and Indiana Jones are talking about how the, the people are digging in the wrong place. We are often digging in the wrong place. And you cannot expect to find a cure for age-related disease if you keep putting money and digging in the wrong place. Yeah, and like it's a, it's a complex system. So I don't know why, why to concentrate only in one basket, all the balls. Well, again, I think the problem is we're a prisoner of our assumptions. <clears throat> we assume we understand something and we don't. Um, you know, if I, Lord Kelvin, for example, in 1895 made the statement that heavier than air aircraft are impossible. And he was not ignorant. He was not superstitious. He was not naive or foolish, but he had assumptions about aerodynamics that were flawed. He understood about weight. He understood about air pressure, but he was a little weak on aerodynamics. And he assumed he understood the problem, but he didn't. And that's an issue that we always have. Uh, you know, in the early 1900s, we assumed that we understood what atoms and subatomic particles must be. They must be little teeny particles, and they're not. They are quantum things. And it wasn't until 1924 in the first publication, and that would begin to get a glimmer, that our assumptions about uh, atoms being billiard balls and protons being, being smaller billiard balls were flawed. It's the assumption that we understand it that gets in our way. And I think that's what happens with aging. People tend to assume that aging, quote, just happens. It's just entropy. No, it's a lot more complicated than being just entropy. And, and I think in Alzheimer's specifically, with the beta amyloid conception, it looks too good to be true. But people are, it looks very sim like simple and logical that if we have the metal that, uh, that, that, that uh, destroys the neurons, mm -hmm. If only we can take it out, it will, uh, everything will be okay. 
Well, here's an analogy for that. Yeah, you know, we've known about beta amyloid for an excess of 110 years since LOS Alzheimer's first described it. And even he warned against people thinking of that as the cause. And more recently, it's been tau tangles and then mitochondrial dysfunction and microglial activation and the list goes on and on. Um, but, uh, you know, we could make the same mistake by looking at Ebola. We could say Ebola is no more than a, a bleeding predilection, a bleeding diathesis, uh, plus nausea, plus fever, plus white count, plus aches and pains. <clears throat> but that's not what Ebola virus is or Ebola infections are. It is a complicated interaction between a virus and a very complicated mammalian organism, namely you and I. It is not simply a collection of symptoms. And if you treat the symptoms, for example, by giving blood products and pressure agents and fluids and antiemetics, <clears throat> that may help, but it does not treat the disease. And I think that's where we are with regard to Alzheimer's. If we just treat beta amyloid and tau tangles, you may or may not get some borderline effects, but you're not treating the problem. Yeah. And like um, one, one new assumption is that you can, um, <clears throat> this is a new approach, relatively new approach, suggesting that restoring the vitality of the immune cells uh, will possibly regain the cognitive abilities and will encourage waste uh, disposal, disposal and manage to protect neurons from death. That this will lead to a better uh, function of the microglia cells and less uh, delay Alzheimer, possibly. You think it can go backwards like that? If we treat the microglia and the, and the brain will function better, the body will have less uh, damage, less- Yes risk. and no. I mean, the problem, Gil, is that people tend to look at this in a component way. Sometimes the component they look at is beta amyloid or the component is tau, tau protein. But they do the same thing if they think it's just a matter of immune function or just microglia or just astrocytes or just, uh, just anything, uh, just um, the you know, vascular and endothelial cells. Um, they're still looking at a component. In that case, they're looking at it in terms of the histology component rather than the, the chemical component. But it's more than a component problem. It's a broader problem than that. Um, so if we only treat, for example, uh, macrophages, or we only treat astrocytes, or we only treat T cells, or we, you're st it's still a problem where people are missing the point. They're not going deep enough and saying, this is a complicated system, which is more than just a component. Um, here's an analogy of that. Uh, I have a friend who, in fact, our CEO, and was responsible for um, overseeing the design of some of the, the, um, uh, the Rolls-Royce jet engines. And if I have a fan blade in the Trident 800 uh, uh, turbofan of that engine, and it fails, the question you should ask is not why did that fan blade fail, but why did that fan blade fail in the turbofan, in the Rolls-Royce jet engine, in the Airbus 380, at 35,000 feet, at hundreds of miles an hour, going hundreds of RPM at a very high temperature. In short, it's a system problem, not a fan blade problem. And if you just look at the fan blade, or you just look at any particular component, you're missing the problem. The problem is systemic. It's, it's an issue that's dynamic, not static. And that's what's going on here too. If you just focus on T cells or just focus on immune function or just focus on any particular cell or any particular physiologic process, you're sort of missing the system. You're missing the dynamic portion of what's going on with this cascade of pathology in age-related disease and particularly in Alzheimer's. How, will, how do you think like computer power will help you you said it's a system. Yes, but not much. I mean, a computer power <clears throat> won't help much. Let me uh, give you an analogy too. Let's say that you and I, again, went back to 1500s, early 1500s in Europe. And again, we know that there's a smallpox epidemic coming. And uh, all of the local herbalists are extremely bright people and extremely knowledgeable, more so than I ever will be about herbal medicine. And seriously, they knew a great deal. <clears throat> um, and, but they have this conception that, that things can be treated with small molecules, that is herbal medicine. And they had no concept of microbial disease, invisible little creatures that, that attack you, and they wouldn't believe it. Now, let's say we could go back and give them access to quantum computing, massive data crunching, crunching artificial intelligence, <clears throat> enormous supercomputers. Uh, the problem is they'd still be asking the wrong question. They'd try to, be a, they'd try to identify which is the right herbal medicine and what doses and what combinations to give. But it's the wrong question. 
And the same thing is the danger here with regard to trying to deal with Alzheimer's and artificial intelligence or, or you know, quantum computers, or anything you want to throw at it. It's not simply a matter of identifying the right small molecule. It's a matter of understanding the system itself. And if you, again, you, if it's the danger of your assumptions. You're a prisoner of your assumptions. And if your assumptions are, for example, that microbes don't exist, you'll look in the wrong place. If your assumption is that all of, of Alzheimer's can be caused by beta amyloid and 14 other small molecular problems that can be dealt with small molecules, and you attack that with artificial intelligence, you're still asking the wrong question. You need to step back and understand your assumptions. Um, you know, if, um, another example might be the, the early Vatican astronomers back again 500 years ago, uh, we're trying to calculate the orbits of the planets, but they started with the assumption that the Earth was the center of the universe. So they got these increasingly complicated epicycles. And if they had had access to quantum computers and artificial intelligence, they would have calculated precisely the location of the planets, but their entire assumption was wrong in the first place. The premise was wrong when they started. So since they asked the wrong question, they get the wrong answer. Very good calculations of where Mars will be in 43 years and two days but they don't understand the system itself. That's where we are with regard to age-related disease, Gil. Yeah. Well, I, I, like, I like computers. I like AI. I'm in favor of it. But you have to understand that the limits are imposed here, not there. Um, but maybe, like, again, I, I, what I think the, the, the problem with AI uh, uh, regarding to biology what? that it's hard like to do clinical trials on humans and the data well there, there are like AI is supposed like to ask questions that we couldn't uh, we couldn't think of in the beginning from the data itself but with with the medical uh, development the data itself is not on humans. So <laughs> we are. I know a lot of people are trying to talk about, instead of in vivo and in vitro and ex vivo experiments, talking about in silico experiments where you can run these things essentially by modeling them. And again, there's an enormous benefit to that as long as you watch your assumptions. Those assumptions um, can destroy your entire conclusion. Yeah, from, from your understanding, um, like we know that uh, cells divide and and everything uh, gets each uh, each time they divide it the process is uh, we, we are getting older this mm -hmm. is you think there is something in a lower level that causes the aging uh, process i'm not sure what you mean by lower level like uh, the answer probably is yes but but i need yeah. to understand which direction is lower like, is it a, is there a process that is parallel to this? That, that, uh, causes, like, uh, let, me, let me use an analogy here. Uh, again, you know, one of the things that used to bother me 50 years ago, sort of in graduate school, was that uh, people always would shrug when it came to aging and say, it just happens. Things rust, they fall apart, what do you expect? Um, and let's take uh, two houses, okay? Here's my house behind me. Take two houses both built in the same year, <clears throat> both built with the same exact construction, everything is the same. And one house, uh, people live in it, take care of it. And they repaint it and they take care of the windows, they uh, replace missing pieces. They take care of it very carefully every year. <clears throat> the other, they just let it go, they don't worry about it. And I go 150 years forward in the future, this house is still doing very well, this one is not. The yeah. entropy has been precisely the same, but the maintenance here has been superb. The maintenance here has been non-existent. <clears throat> and the same is true of a garden. I take two gardens and one of them I weed and I care for, the other I ignore. This one, two years from now, is hard to find. This one looks gorgeous. It is a matter not of entropy or weeds or anything else. It's a matter of maintenance. Um, you know, in biology, we talk about red queen theory. And here the idea is, any system, for example, a human body, is continually being threatened by, for example, bacterial infections, viral infections, predators, you name it. It's part of biology. And the only way to sort of stay in one place is to run very fast. That is, my immune system has to be able to keep up with the latest COVID virus. Actually, I'm probably one of the only people you've met has actually had COVID vaccine. Um, I think I'm safe. 
but it, you see what I mean? It's, it's not a matter of, of the threats that kill you. It's a matter of you being able to keep up with those threats, which is why evolution continually tries to keep up with the threats of predators getting better and better, or your prey getting harder and harder to find, or the bacteria or the viruses, or the prions, you name it, fungi. Um, so red queen theory really is sort of at the essence of this. What's going on with aging is not that entropy wins, but that maintenance loses. Entropy wins in a sense because maintenance is turned down. Now, the other interesting question is sort of a teleologic one, which is why does maintenance get turned down? And it turns out there's some interesting evolutionary answers to that, you know, why we age. And again, as you might expect, it's even more complicated than you first think. But aging is not a matter of entropy, it's a matter of maintenance. And maintenance turns out to be modulated by these changes in gene expression that are in turn modulated by changes in the length of telomeres that are modulated by cell division that in turn are modulated by other things. For example, the degree to which I undergo trauma or infection, all of which increases my, or if I smoke or drink a lot or anything that those things will increase my rate of aging. If I go out and get sunburned a lot, I increase skin aging. But the problem is, as I try to replace damaged cells, I shorten telomeres, change telomere length, change gene expression, change maintenance, turn down protein turnover and recycling, turn down DNA repair. And the next thing you know, I'm old. Yes, it's complicated, but it's in principle, the, the concepts are startlingly obvious And if, if in I, retrospect. <laughs> if I understood correctly, and I will take it like to the next uh, level, then let's say even if we... we we managed to like break the 100, 120 limit, as we know today of aging. And we, we knew what are the mechanisms we need and how to maintain and how to maintain them. After we'll break it, part of evolution is that we will need to deal with uh, maybe another. Uh, All right, I think I see where you're going. So let me give you two examples of this. Um, let's just look at the lungs for a minute. Now let's take two very young people with excellent lung function. And one of them gets a series of lung infections, pneumonias, for example, bronchitis, um, anything that involves anything in the, in the pulmonary system. Now, that person who has a series of infections will have a, a early aging of the lungs because you're turning over, for example, the pneumocytes, for example, the, the fibroblasts, for example, the immune system uh, that's involved with, with lung function and, and the vascular system. You know, there've been injuries, cells being replaced, it ages faster. So this person will end up with early lung disease, for example, COPD or pulmonary fibrosis, okay? Now that kind of problem could be dealt with with telomerase. I can reset the pattern of gene expression and give them theoretically young lung function. Now let's look at a different case. Here's a person over here, started out with identical lungs, very healthy, never had any infections, but they work in a mine and they're continually exposed to silica particles of all sorts. And they begin to get depositions of, of silica particles throughout the lung. This person, that's not an age-related process that I can address with telomerase at all. The fact is those, those silica particles are, are causing damage to the lung just by being there and I can't get them out. It's simply a matter of accumulated damage. Whereas these ones we could reset, those ones we can't. So, um, you know, maybe another example might be the, um, no, I'll just leave it at that. That's probably the best example I can come up with instantly. It's, some things are age-related. Some things are just related to the fact that you've been sitting on this planet too long. Well, well I, I will ask like a general question about the <clears throat> Alzheimer. When, when you say we, were, we might reverse it, what do you mean that we will get memories back that we lost or how will it look like? Years how ago, some 24 years ago, I gave the first talk ever at the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland on aging and the possibility of reversing it. And one of the things I said was that anyone who leaves this talk in an hour and thinks you can reverse aging is naive. Anyone who leaves this talk in an hour and thinks you cannot reverse aging is naive. The question really is, where's the data? And that's kind of what's going on here too. Now, let me give you some of the, what we do know. We do know that we can actually improve the behavior of animals. That is, animal, any, almost any animal shows behavioral decline with age. Um, you know, what is it? You, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, if we look at animals that we try treating this with these mechanisms that we're gonna take the human trials, you find you can improve their ability to learn, their ability to do behavioral things that they weren't confident at 
before you treated them. So we know we can get return um, in many ways. We also know there's evidence that in Alzheimer's, much of the loss, not clear how much, but much of the loss is not a loss of memory, but your ability to access the memory. That is the memory's there, you just can't get at it. Um, now, let me add another piece to this. If I take any patient with Alzheimer's, the odds are that there are a number of cells that are damaged but still functional, and there are a number of cells that are gone. They're just gone. And I probably can't get back cells that are gone, let alone reestablish the right connections. But if I take cells that are damaged but still functional, I can probably make them more functional. What that suggests, what the data suggests from animals, from humans, and from what I just said, suggest that we probably can get improvement in Alzheimer's patients, but not everything, okay? So my, my guess is something like this. Let's take a scale, and I'm gonna make up this scale from zero to 10. There are many different Alzheimer's scales, but let's just imagine one from zero to 10. And zero is I have no problem, and 10 is I'm at the very end of my life in the nursing home, and I can't care for myself, barely breathe. Um, my guess is that if we take patients with about four or five on that scale, we can get them back to about a two or three rather than a zero, rather than not being able to affect them at all. I just don't know the limits of that. Back to my remark at the NIH, which is show me the data. Let's see what happens. Okay. And where, where are you like regarding to the phase one? Well, the biggest problem, you know, first, uh, obviously there's a problem of getting the financing we need to do this. And that involves convincing people that it's worth trying in the face of all prior failures and having a, an innovative model for how these things work. The but second is the time it takes to produce them. And the third is, is actually- One second, but this model still didn't uh, try, been tried. I'm sorry, what? This, this model wasn't ever tried like as a- Not in humans yet, no. In humans, yeah. No, in animals, yes, in humans, no. So, you know, it's an innovative model. Um, and as I say, every, everything else has failed. They, they sometimes say that, that Alzheimer's is a graveyard of companies. Okay. or that everything works in mice, nothing works in humans. So there are a lot of caveats. Um, but so one, convincing the investors to move ahead. Two, uh, the, the FDA has to sign on to what we want to do. And three, we have to have the vendors produce in, in quality and quantity what we need for this. So there are sort of rate-limiting steps to moving ahead with all this. Uh, our best estimate is it will be about two years before we start the first safe human trial and that we'll have results within three years. And if I understand the biology correctly, like every cell has a chromosome and it has terminals in the end. Every cell, yeah. every cell has what, you know? Every cell has a, a chromosome with a telomer in the, in the end of it. Mm -hmm. And so we can have a lot of uh, diseases that are related to this kind of problem. Mm -hmm. That's, I'm correct? Yes. Um, you know, the, so one of so, these questions uh, is how come you get Parkinson's and I get Alzheimer's, or I get Alzheimer's and you get coronary artery disease? No, the, the question is why not to start with, um, with trying to cure a disease that is related to a, an organ that is not in the brain with the same uh, method? Uh, that's a question that we sort of addressed before. It has to do with the risk benefit. Um, you know, I, I could go after osteoarthritis, but right now this, you know, the, the standard treatment for osteoarthritis is, for example, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medicines or replacement of the joint. So there are options and osteoarthritis doesn't kill people. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, Alzheimer's is a better target because it's fatal and there's no other treatment. So it's a, it's a much more effective target for us. So well, we covered a lot. We covered almost everything. Uh, let me ask you if I was a genie. I asked Dr. Brian Kennedy the same question for the former CEO of the Buck Institute. Yes, no, if I was a genie, yeah. What, what were is your three requests to make it happen uh, faster? Not just faster, but correctly. Um, you know, I... <clears throat> My biggest worry is not that the model is wrong, but that we will not test it carefully enough. Uh, that is, uh, we'll do something wrong in trying to get this to work right. 
back to the example of, of the Wright brothers. There are lots of ways to fail getting their first plane off the ground, but they were right, but they needed to get it exactly right to get the plane off the ground. That's sort of where we are with regard to gene therapy these days. Um, everybody thinks it's simple in, in principle and in principle it is, but the technical details are remarkably hard. Example, um, you know, in the US about 60 or 70% of people already have antibodies to the sort of virus I want to use. So can we give it effectively? Um, there are some risks to damage to certain uh, ganglia in, in the spine if we use AAV. And yet we can get around both of those problems, but we have to be careful how we do it. And we also know that the kind of approach we're using doesn't give us the, the efficacy we'd like to have. So can we improve it? Yes, we can. But what are, the, what are those ways of improving it are the safest and most effective? This is early and it's much more complicated than most people think of it as. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's my genie wish. I would like to get this right. I'd like to save lives and make people have better lives. Okay. How, how does the FDA, you said like you, you're working with the, like the FDA needs to prepare to gene therapies uh, to do their own uh, um, <clears throat> process. Are they doing something about it? Like it's a new concept? Yeah, it's new. I mean, it's worldwide, it's new. It's been around a while. And of course there were some setbacks back almost 20 years ago with some early deaths. Jesse Gelsinger comes to mind. Um, and that made us all pause and be very careful for a decade or so. And there's still some issues coming up. Um, so if I look at the FDA, it, it basically you can think of it as being two sections. There's the CEDAR section, which looks at small molecules, and there's a CBER section that looks at biological treatments like gene therapy. And this has been well known for a long time. The processes are well understood. This is new and it is changing in a sense month to month. And the people involved in this at the level of the FDA and CBER are very bright and very enthusiastic and eager to see things work but they don't wanna make it, they don't wanna screw it up either. They wanna make sure it's done carefully. And I can't but agree more. I entirely with them on this. But the consequence is that, that some of these, the things we do and how we do that safely are unknown, they're changing. Example, if I give you a gene therapy, how long do I need to follow you? Because you may still have the virus. Do I follow you for a year, six years, 15 years, forever? Um, do you shed the virus? Can you infect other people? Uh, again, what are long-term risks? What about risks of cancer? All of these things are in flux in some sense. And, you know, we've got a lot of people know a great deal about it, but not as much as we need to know. And I think that, that CBER and the FDA and the EMA in Europe and others recognize that. And I think anybody involved in gene therapy recognizes that. Um, so we're doing the best we can. Yeah. Um, and like in terms of... Uh... <clears throat> sorry I, I lost my <laughs> no I lost I had a question but I, I waited and uh... <sighs> yeah it was a question that was referring to what you said and I just lost you see we're talking about memory and <laughs> I'm young but <laughs> Yeah, that's an example. Funny uh, thing is, as I often have said, that you know, if you, if at age twenty you forget your car keys, you don't worry about it. At age seventy, you forget your car keys and you assume you've got Alzheimer's. The older you get, the more you worry about these things. Even though everybody forgets things. Yeah, everyone. Uh, well, I was in one lecture and they said if if you forget what the keys needs to do, then that's you need to start worry. But how many times have you and I and everybody? at a time where you walked into the other room to get something, got there and can't remember what you were going to go get. That's welcome to life. Yes. We need not to take it too seriously because it just. Well, uh, it, but like so many other things, you know, if you have a chest pain at age 20, you don't think much about it. If you have a chest pain at age 60, you think you've got a heart attack and the odds go up or a lump, a cancer. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, let's go up with age. And yet it's sort of part of life to have lumps and pains and memory problems. It's not new for any of us. Yeah. So are you like in a New York company or uh, are, you, are you sitting in uh, San Francisco? No, a typical virtual company. I am currently right now in Michigan. 
Our CEO in the United States, our CEO is in the UK, our COO is in Boston, our chief consultant uh, is in Scotland. Um, you know, our attorneys are all over the world. They joke that they really live at 35,000 feet in aluminum tubes. Um, and our, our chief uh, vendor for production is really in Texas. Uh, our first medical site will probably be in Kansas, although we're looking at several other possible sites. And then our phase two trials will be global. So it's typical of a new, of a, you know, company in these days, particularly in these days of COVID. You know, yeah. It's like, <clears throat> I didn't go to the Amsterdam conference this year. I'm not going to the conference on gene therapy next or this week. I'm following it online. Everything is online. Yeah. Pretty much. And our investors said the same thing. The first question was, do you have brick and mortar? Which is, do you have a building? And we said we didn't. And they said, good, we don't invest in brick and mortar. That's times have changed. Yeah. That's actually, if we're talking about investors, it's quite it reminds me that the question I forgot. Like, how much? Uh, like the investment uh, society are willing to invest in gene therapies these days? I'd say that well less than 1% of the people that you get in touch with regarding investments are actually wanting to follow through and invest. I'm not sure how atypical that is. Um, and I know that the biotech market has done very well over the past 11 months or so with COVID. Um, but, uh, you know, it's Part of the problem, of course, is that uh, people would like to make a lot of money but not have any, any risk. doesn't happen. Uh, people are not willing to invest in innovative things in general, even though they often say they are. And people are often in, willing to invest in things that um, they're familiar with. So some companies only want to invest in software, some only in medical devices, some in diagnostics, some in, in innovative therapeutic approaches. So it's hard to find just that right match. We have found the people who are willing to invest in us and we'll probably move ahead very quickly now. Yeah. And if you're speaking about diagnostic, like you can reverse, like you, you want to reverse aging. And I know a lot of, of companies, like a lot of companies are trying to build like diagnostic that will, uh, will predict if you will have disease, what kind of disease you will have and we'll try to prevent, but can we refer to your treatment as a preventing the, uh, therapy too? Almost certainly, yes. But think about how difficult it is to prove that. So let's say that I right now, I don't, but let's say that right now, I have a shot right here I can give you that will cure your Alzheimer's. Let's say that's true. How would I now prove, and I can prove that like you have Alzheimer's and I give it to you and you get better. Let's say that's true. Now, Let's say that you could also use the same thing to prevent Alzheimer's. How do you prove that? Well, what you have to do is find thousands of patients who will get Alzheimer's in the next 10 years, give it to them and wait 10 years and compare it to the people who didn't get the shot. You know how difficult that is? For one, that takes 10 years. And two, if there's any evidence that it works to cure it, nobody wants to get the placebo. So how do you prove it prevents Alzheimer's? The same is true of many other diseases. If you're trying to prove these things, it's very difficult uh, for prevention, whereas intervention, might be easier, even though most of us would prefer prevention in the first place. Yeah. And what, uh, how is the participant, like, like uh, people want to participate in uh, Alzheimer's trials? Uh, yes and no. Um, for us, yes. Um, because we're looking for patients with moderate degrees of Alzheimer's. The ideal patient, I've been on some of the global recruitment, patient recruitment calls, and the ideal patient for most companies worldwide both bio, little biotech and big pharma is the patient who hasn't got Alzheimer's, but will get it quickly. That is, they've got gene risks. They've got uh, known uh, laboratory risks. They've got family risks. They've got other risks that predict that they'll get Alzheimer's, but they have no symptoms right now. And the rationale for that decision, uh, and most companies are fairly honest about it. Most companies will tell you they don't feel that they can stop Alzheimer's, but if they catch it very early, they could maybe slow it. Think of it as catching that first couple of pebbles in an avalanche. Um, and the consequence is they having, they're having a very hard time finding patients because their perfect patient not only would have those characteristics, but would also have MRI scans and PET scans and data that show that things are about to happen, which are expensive. So they're fighting for these patients and it's very hard to find them. We're actually looking for patients with moderate Alzheimer's because we think we can actually improve cognitive function. So it's a lot easier to find patients who want to volunteer who already have Alzheimer's 
than it is to find patients who don't have it, but might get it. So it's very easy for us, very hard for most companies. Yeah, so this is uh, one uh, point, like a good point for Alzheimer, for, for your company, because in cancer, I know it's hard too, to, there's a lot of uh, competition on the, mm-hmm. on the patient. Very much so, yeah. Uh, so maybe- Especially this year with COVID, when no one wants to go in and be in touch with other people and get COVID as well as cancer. So it's a very tough year for many clinical trials. Yeah, I think Israel has bought from two companies, hmm. Pfizer and Moderna. Mm-hmm. And the government, like you know, will will uh, <clears throat> is supposed to give it, but still, still people are afraid to take it. <laughs> vaccine, you mean? Yeah, vaccine. Yeah, I understand. Uh, you know, I, I, I'd be eager to take the vaccine, but I understand some people have have calms about it. Okay, I understand. Yeah, so it, it still doesn't uh, solve like completely the problem, even if we will have it. And okay, Michael, thank you again for your time. Uh, again, you are. I, I see. I saw a lot of your uh, content podcasts, and uh, each time you give one hundred percent of yourself. Uh, I appreciate it. Tada! You're welcome. Bye. Okay. Later, eh? Thanks. <clears throat>